Probably one of the most important records in the group's history is a record, Still Life Talking, which we recorded in 1987, is significant on a whole bunch of levels. First of all, it was the first group record after I left ECM. Being on a record label other than ECM just opened up a world of possibilities that we simply didn't have at ECM, not to say anything against the way we did it at ECM or against ECM at all. The way their whole thing was structured at ECM was that you recorded for two days, you mixed for a day, that was your record. For better or for worse, it came out. Whether you liked it or not, that was your record. And this was the first time that we had the chance to spend more time in the studio. We didn't spend that much time, but it was like 10 times as much time as we... Actually, it was about 10 times as much time as we spent with ECM. I mean, I think we spent two weeks in the studio. It was a chance to kind of explore the idea of using the studio as an instrument. And by that, I mean, we took our time to get the details right. We, we allowed the possibility of doing something a whole bunch of times rather than just three or four times. And the music that we wrote seemed to really be well-suited to that type of recording procedure. And it was thrilling to be able to let the band sort of settle into this more microscopic way of making records. And along those lines, Steve Rodby's presence as a producer sort of began to emerge in, into the very prominent way that it's figured into the later group records. Uh, Steve brought to the table uh, an incredible wealth of recording studio experience that honestly none of the rest of us had. Steve uh, had spent 10 or 15 years in the studios of Chicago doing every record date and in particular every jingle that there was and that may seem like a far removed connection to making a jazz record but I'm talking about jingles in particular but you know in many ways getting good performances on out of a recording situation in a recording environment is sort of separate from the style that it's recorded in and Steve is very very good at sort of allowing people to do their best work in a recording studio. His presence was was huge in terms of the way that that record came out and the way it was made. And also along those same lines, Rob Eaton, who had been the assistant engineer on First Circle and had been very involved in the making of Song X, got the call to be our main recording engineer. He was a young, very enthusiastic and brilliant ally for us uh, in the studio and in fact remains there to this day, has recorded every group record since and um, is our first call guy for everything having to do with sound. And his imprint on the band's sound and development is huge on Still Life and like I say, continues through every record since.
record first circle, I finally felt like the group was what I had hoped it might be someday. Kind of leading up to first circle, and I know lots of people love the records that preceded that, but I, I almost felt like the band had not quite gotten to the just general level that, you know, I felt like I had experienced, you know, like say in Gary Burton's band. There was this sort of sense of just development that I just was missing somehow in, in the earlier group. That uh, with First Circle, it was like, okay, now this is something that I really feel like the conception part of it is there, the execution part of it is there. We've got the right band for, for this, and we can kind of go anywhere now, and we can really follow this through to its natural places. The fundamental idea of having a vocal element in the band that sort of was not like a, another frontline instrument with the guitar, but was sort of just another place we could go to for melodic information, for textural information, and that there could be people in the band who were not necessarily functioning as soloists, but were more like ensemble players, was something that had been developed on First Circle with the addition of Pedro Aznar, but was taken much further with Still Life Talking with two musicians, David Blay Myers and Mark Ledford, who sadly is not with us now. He, he we're, we're, very, we're very sad about his passing. But both of them were kind of these super musicians who could sing incredibly well, could play guitars, could play brass instruments, could play percussion, they could do all this stuff. And suddenly that idea of sort of ensemble became something that we could really go at. To add to the mix, I had been living in Brazil during that period. We had had one great Brazilian percussionist in the band uh, prior to that, Nana Vasconcelos, who had joined us on Wichita and then later off-ramp. And while I was in Brazil, I was like, wow, you know, I want to get another percussionist. I'm just going to have open auditions. And I auditioned, I think, 50 or 60 people. It was just kind of like the call was out that there was this gig to be had from this you know, American jazz guy, and everybody came, brought their instruments, and it was a really fun two days. But there was one guy who was just light years beyond everyone else. There was not even any close comparison, and that was Armando Marcel, who I was really happy to welcome into the band, um, and he played with us for a few years after that. And uh, he was a great spirit to have in the group. He just a, a very positive, very wonderful human being to be around day in and day out who brought something very special to the music too which was that flavor and um, we had incredible experiences with that band doing all kinds of things together musically that I think none of us had done quite like that before. pieces on that record are, I guess, notable for the way they kind of hung together. I mean, that's one thing that people comment on a lot about that record, is how from sort of beginning to end it really does a thing, which is something we've, we've always worked on and certainly continued to work on in the records that followed that. We were pretty happy when we finally got the sequence of that record and listened to the whole thing 
as a piece after we got over the fact that it was quite different sounding than than any records that we had made and and in our opinion was more reflective of what the band really sounded like then you know it's funny how the tunes on that record have really held up there's tunes on there that i still play regularly and i still find a million things to do on them two songs on that record last train home and so may it secretly begin are pieces that I can still play, you know, kind of any time, in any context, with any band, with any musicians. And they just are tunes that are fun to play, that kind of have that durability that's very rare. They're, they're pieces that seem to do what they need to do regardless of the context that they're presented in. And to me, that's always a, uh, a goal in a way, to try to come up with melodic information that has that kind of bulletproof quality that, that to me, the best music usually has. There were a few things in terms of the collaborative writing that Lyle and I did on that record that were significantly ambitious. Um, there was the scale and the scope of both Third Wind and 6-8, uh, Minuano, that were kind of a continuation of what we had started with First Circle, but I would say a couple degrees further down the road in terms of the techniques that were used and some of the specific elements of like using the marimbas, having that kind of metric modulation that you find in Third Wind where we're moving from section to section uh, that, that sort of is a way that's just a, a different kind of approach to things that we had done prior to that. And there's a couple aspects, I guess, of that period of time in terms of, of just the sound of the instruments that was unique. I mean, when I listen to it now, I mean, I, I remember at the time I did the whole record with a mic on the guitar, which is something that I hadn't really done before that gives it a kind of more intimate kind of sound. You can really hear a lot of scratching and, you know, kind of more human kinds of elements to build in with the, the complexity of the electric sound. And that sort of goes across the board. I mean, we spent a lot more time on the bass sound, you know, just trying to get the details of the music a little bit um, more specific. Ultimately, it's probably one of the favorite records for us um, from the people that follow the band. I mean, uh, I, I often get requests from people to play songs from that or to play the entire record in, in order and stuff like that. I mean, that kind of thing that seems to follow around a record that has an identity as an album that sort of makes it stand apart. It was exciting at that time for us to be on Geffen Records. Song X had been released prior to Still Life, but Geffen was kind of at its peak at that time. This was, uh, you know, a label that had been started by David Geffen. It had, you know, its first release was a very famous one with John Lennon. And it was a real record company. I mean, what was cool about it is they had a very diverse roster and almost no jazz except for us. 
And what was exciting was that the people at Geffen didn't think of it as, oh, this is jazz. To them, we were just another band, sort of like they had Nirvana later on. I mean, we were just one of their bands. And they got the record out there in a way that was unlike anything we had experienced. And we were at our peak at that time of touring. I mean, we, I don't know how many gigs we did during the year that Still Life was released, but it would have been a lot in the hundreds all of that combined to, to make something happen that we had not experienced before, which was a very substantial amount of records being sold. And partially that was driven by the cumulative effect of the band. I mean, we were really doing quite well at that point and had for, for a while, but still we had never quite experienced that thing of, of having genuine help from anybody. We'd pretty much done it all by ourselves. And it was pretty exciting when that record went gold. It was the first time we'd had a gold record, which means it sold 500,000 copies just here in the States and probably that much again around the world. I think you, you talk to jazz guys often and they always feel like if they just had a little bit of help getting their music out there, there would be, you know, hundreds of thousands or more people would like it. And we experienced that with that record. I mean, there was nothing really overtly commercial about that record. You know, uh, the tunes are like 10 minutes long and we didn't really do anything except what we did. And yet at the same time, we experienced a kind of success with that record that we had never experienced before, even having come off a few pretty successful records on ECM. <laughs> 